Hello, everyone. I'm Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm here today with Professor Ninel Grigori of the Baskin Pomeroy Institute of the University of Miami School of Medicine. Nell, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pugliafito, for having me on the air with you. So um, you've done a lot of work on gene therapy for inherited retinal disorders. And can you just give us a, um, a definition of what the scope of this field is like today? Sure. So um, with my wonderful colleagues, Byron Lamb and Janet Davis, we started on corduremia back in 2014, I believe, or 2016. And that was really the first uh, clinical trials that we did and learned how to do the procedure and develop the technique and started using OCT, intraoperative OCT, because it was such a tough disorder. And then we evolved uh, onto other conditions, X-Link RP and um, uh, other forms of RP. And uh, uh, what else did we do? Um, mainly those, and then it kind of evolves to StarGuard and uh, optogenetics and uh, you name it. So it's been really fun. And I could tell you that looking at clinicaltrials.gov, which I just actually did for a talk that I'm doing in um, Boston for Atlantic Coast Retina meeting, um, I could see that there are so many trials in various conditions, phase one and phase two, and now we even have phase three clinical trials, such as um, uh, those in uh, X-linked retinitis pigmentosa. And uh, I'm going to look at my notes so that I don't forget to tell you which other ones, but, but yeah, and OSH2A uh, um, uh, RP with exon 13 mutation. So those are the phase three clinical trials, but there are so many phase one and two and phase two clinical trials and conditions such as corduremia, um, X-linked retinitis pigmentosa, uh, X-linked retinoschisis, and um, uh, in LCA types, in um, also StarGuard, uh, those are the optogenetic StarGuard and uh, end-stage StarGuard and end-stage RP. So we certainly have um, so many conditions um, that are being um, uh, studied in these trials. And hopefully we'll have, uh, uh, you know, a, a new medicine come out, not just RPE65 or retogenic pyrovec that we have now, but perhaps we'll have others uh, if these trials show uh, safety and efficacy of these agents. So what are the, the key steps in starting a successful program? Well, I think it takes a team, definitely. Um, the team should have um, a surgeon uh, or two uh, that are comfortable in doing subretinal, intravitreal, and now supracoital injections. Um, and it's not that difficult. You know, we can be taught and we can be trained. Um, it also takes a good surgical team. Um, you know, we have technicians and nurses that have been doing this with us for many years. And I know that if they are with me in the operating room, if I have any issues with instrumentation, they will get me through it. Um, so they're very familiar uh, with the procedure. It also takes um, close collaboration with the companies, with the sponsor. I really love when sponsors um, come to the surgeries and um, uh, are there to 
um, suggest perhaps uh, on how to proceed because some surgical procedures are a bit tricky and um, it's really good to have um, someone there from the company to um, guide you along. Sometimes that you need that. Um, clinical coordinators are just amazing and are a really important part of the team. So um, good technicians, just good infrastructure for all the testing that needs to be done for these patients. You know, mobility testing, you need to have a room. And uh, we do have a room at Bascom Palmer where mobility testing is performed. Um, so great photographer, great um, technician, clinical uh, or study coordinator, and, and your OR team. It really makes the, you know, the essence of it. What's the average age of the patients enrolled in the trials? Well, it depends on which disease and which trials, right? So, um, we, um, Nina Barakal uh, does um, uh, children and uh, she's involved in clinical trials um, that are treating pediatric population. I'm involved with the adults mostly, although I have treated older children, 10 and above. So um, I, I would say that it depends on the disease. So in cordyremia, we, have young, we had younger patients. They were in their 20s and 30s. Um, in X-linked retinitis pigmentosa, we had younger patients. These were again, in their 20s, um, because, um, you know, RP starts early in life. Um, end stage conditions, um, trials um, of optogenetics and others, those are older patients in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. So it just depends. But, um, you know, it's a good spread of, of various ages. What's the preoperative evaluation of the patients like? Well, they have to be, of course, genetically tested to make sure that they qualify for the trial. Um, and we have to make sure that the eye is healthy. You know, we rule out things like you know, cataracts and glaucoma um, and uh, make sure that the, that the eye is healthy enough, that there's enough OC, um, retina on the OCT um, that would have some viable cells that perhaps could benefit from the gene therapy that we are putting in the eye. So um, those are the, you know, the clinical aspects that we look at. And then of course, we wanna make sure that the patient and the family are supportive of, um, you know, the, of the whole process. They have to make sure that they come in um, and follow through with uh, all the clinical and uh, study visits. So. But I would say that it's a good discussion. I always explain to the patients and the family uh, what, what's involved, the risks, and the risks are uh, a bit unusual, I guess, because this is um, many of these trials are phase one, two, so we're just starting out. Inflammation, visual loss, um, you know, could definitely occur. So I have to really make sure they understand that this is um, not a, um, a drug yet that we know that it will benefit them, but that's why we're doing the trial and that's why we're doing the, you know, giving them hope in the trial and hope for other patients to come. Can you estimate the total number of patients that have been treated in your program to date? So we published during the pandemic, I, um, I wrote uh, with Janet a, a paper on our first 120 cases that uh, we did, I would say by 2020. Since then, we've done another probably, I would say, 30 cases I've done since then. So, um, so we are around um, 150, maybe 160 cases so far. And, and I would need to count, <laughs> I guess, to be So that's, that's, that's a big program. 
yeah, no, we, we definitely, you know, it was really interesting, Carmen, that when we started, um, this was such a new procedure and we had to really figure out how to do it safely. Um, I remember early, in the early days, we didn't even have a commercially available microinjector. So we had to use um, just, you know, syringes that we had in clinic and special adapters to connect it to the vitrectomy machine. Because of course the tubing that we use to inject uh, gene therapy and BSS and all that um, connects to VFC function on the machine and uh, only the 10cc syringe would connect to that because of the adapter that comes in the standard pack. So we had to be inventive and use uh, special adapters and uh, uh, we didn't even have um, many cannulas, subretinal cannulas. So then um, Med1 came uh, through and made the microinjector that's now being used for um, majority of the trials, I would say. And, um, you know, the cannulas and then the door came up with a nice extendable can cannula that's, uh, that's really awesome to hold in your hand like a pen. So it makes it easier. So and then, of course, the surgeons, we were all discussing, you know, how do we do it safely? Do we uh, start with a pre-bleb, BSS pre-bleb? Is it necessary? Of course, the drug amount of the drug that you get in many of these trials is so small that if you cannot raise the retina immediately, and I'm talking about subretinal cases, of course, then you could waste the drug. And so we um, decided initially, and it became sort of a uniform, um, very acceptable uh, step is to form, to make that initial BSS pre-bleb and then inject the medication into it. So, but I remember the early discussions back in, you know, 2014, 15, 16 is when the surgeons were concerned about doing that. And, um, you know, but by now, I think we're all convinced that Pre-bleb is helpful in some cases. If you have a lot of drug, you don't need pre-bleb. Some um, IRDs are easier. Um, there's less of adhesion between uh, retina and the RPE. So it's easier to lift the retina in some conditions and in others is very difficult. Corduremia is being, I think, the most difficult condition that I worked with so far. Um, so intraoperative OCT was an essential device. We acquired it at Bascom um, around 2015-16, and we started using it right away um, on corridoremia cases, because it was just impossible to know if you were supracoidal, if you were subretinal, subRPE. So that made it so much more definitive for us. You know, where were we, in, in which uh, tissue plane were we, um, and so we, I don't think we could really do, have done that uh, trial and done it well without intraoperative OCT. So um, that was a major, I think, breakthrough for, for gene therapy as a field in general. What are the common commonalities of the vitreous surgery? Commonalities. Um, so if you're talking about transvitreal subretinal injection, you're talking about, I assume, um, you know, the vitrectomy that's required um, for eventually putting medication onto the retina. Well, the commonality is that the vitreous is quite abnormal in patients with IRD. And it was interesting to see that. And I think I learned a lot doing those cases. I learned that it's almost like a peeling, peeling a membrane, really lifting the hyaloid in a lot of these IRD patients. So we had to stain I like uh, tramsulin lecetonide, I stain with that. We had to 
strip the hyaloid off the macula with either a scraper, like a finesse loop or um, soft tip. And it requires a lot of work at times. So once you've done that, you have to be very careful in the periphery because the vitreous is very adherent there as well. And even in older patients, even in 50s and 60 year old patients. So, so one has to be really careful and perform limited vitrectomy. I don't lift the hyaloid all the way to the aura like you would in a normal case. Um, I cut it down. If I see that it's adhering, doesn't want to come up, I don't force it because you want to avoid iatrogenic breaks. And in these patients, the retina is very thin uh, and the laser um, might not take really um, around these breaks. So one has to be really careful in the periphery. So I think that's sort of a commonality. I think that you're uh, looking for in the IRD cases, perhaps? So um, the modes of delivery are sub subretinal and supracoroidal. Right, and intravitreal. So, um, so subretinal could be done transvitreally, required where a vitrectomy is done first, or now gyroscope therapeutics has this orbit, um, device, which is a supracoroidal approach to subretinal injection. So you don't need to do a vitrectomy. It's a cut down in the sclera. The microcannula is passed through supracoidal space, and then a microneedle penetrates the retina into subretinal space, and a bleb is delivered through supracoidal space. So it's interesting. They're doing clinical trials with it. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, gyroscope works in dry AMD clinical trials. Um, the supracoroidal, I think, is the most uh, recent, really, approach where it's truly supracoroidal delivery of gene therapy. You don't go through supracoroidal space to get into subretinal space. You actually deliver um, gene therapy to supracoroidal space. And that's being done by Regenix Bio in um, wet AMD. Um, so they have uh, clinical trials where they're actually delivering medication with uh, clear side uh, therape uh, therapeutics has the supracoroidal device, which is actually the same device that's um, now FDA approved for Zypir, um, the um, steroid, um, supracoroidal steroid for uh, uveitic uh, macular edema. So it's the same device. And um, I've, I've um, played with it and, and it's, uh, it's, you know, seems to be easy to use. It's uh, done through conjunctiva. So you don't need to take the patient to the operating room. You could actually do it in clinic. So that's, uh, and Peter Campuchero um, and his group, his um, lab, they, they did a lot of work to show that in rats and in non-human primates, supercoidal delivery of the vector that the Regenix Bio uses, which is AAV8 um, viral vector, that it actually um, produces the same expression of the anti-VEGF protein um, in, in the retina choroid and RPE after supracoroidal and after subretinal delivery. So it seems to work. It even goes a little further. It spreads out further than, um, at least in the animals, um, than, uh, than if this drug is delivered subretinally. So, so that's a, an exciting new way um, to deliver gene therapy uh, without having to do vitrectomy. 
and perhaps um, you know gene therapy will last longer. We don't know, right? And spread further because, uh, of course, the limitations of the blood is that you know it's wonderful and beautiful blood, but it's small, right? And if you want to treat um, a patient with early on that still has a lot of viable retina, you want to deliver this medication to a wider um, area of the retina, not just a little bleb. Um, so, and intravitreal delivery is also being studied now in many trials. Um, so um, I mentioned the, well, initially, of course, the problem with intravitreal delivery was that the naturally occurring AAV vectors did not penetrate the retina. So if you put that medication into the eye, it only could um, transduce or transfect uh, the inner retina, right? The ganglion cells and the, and the bipolar cells. And it didn't penetrate the retina to go to photoreceptors in RPE. That's why we started doing subretinal injections initially. Now, these vectors have been now modified and there are these designer vectors that actually penetrate the retina. And so there are trials now, um, you know, for corridoremia and RP and LCA, uh, even um, melanomas, they're oncolytic um, uh, viruses that are being delivered intravitreally. It's interesting. And optogenetics is also an intravitreal approach. Optogenetics, of course, is, um, you know, easy because you just need to deliver uh, the, the, the virus to the inner retina, but in other conditions, the viruses actually penetrate the retina. And so, um, you know, this could also be a very easy in clinic um, kind of approach to deliver gene therapy. And because it doesn't require surgery, you could deliver it perhaps multiple times. So, of course, the concern with intravitreal delivery is inflammation, right? You were putting a virus into the eye. So inflammation and hypotony. And, um, you know, as you, I, as you remember in 2021, there was this um, case from Adverum um, diabetic retinopathy trial where there was a patient who um, unfortunately had inflammation and hypotony and that trial was shut, was shut down uh, in diabetic retinopathy. Um, their trial though with intravitreal uh, medication for dry AMD is continuing and it's continuing just fine. So. Uh, we have to see how the how the results come out, but so so those are the different approaches, you know, and they have all uh, their advantages and disadvantages, and uh, we just have to see which medication and which disease will, you know, do well uh, with with these as clinical trials go on. So very exciting to keep watching this. So, what clinical trials are most advanced in the field of inherited retinal disorders? So I knew you were going to ask me this question. So I'm going to <laughs> look at my cheat sheet. Um, well, phase three clinical trials, right? So that's kind of where we are. So when once we get to phase three, uh, we're getting closer to FDA approval. So I'm going to tell you that um, the um, Lieber hereditary optic neuropathy, there are several trials, phase three, uh, from Genside that actually showed really exciting data um, and, uh, and I know it's optic nerve, it's not the retina, but hey, you know, it's pretty close to the retina. So um, I'm excited to see when this medication will be approved. It's for 11778 um, mutation, mitochondrial DNA mutation. So, um, and you know, what was exciting about that is that they injected one eye and they saw improvement in visual acuity in the second eye, in the contralateral eye. So then they said, hmm, oh, 
how is this possible? So when they did um, non-human primate studies, they actually showed that the virus was uh, able to get to the other eye and also um, into the lateral geniculate nucleus, not to the cortex, so, but mm. it did spread. It's not interesting. So they actually failed to show a difference between treated and untreated eye because the this, this stuff got in to the other eye and both eyes improved. Now, how exciting is that? Now, when they did another trial, um, bilateral, bilateral injections, they did show an improvement with bilateral injections beyond what they got from the contralateral spread. But so we'll see what the FDA decides with that. Um, okay, so that's that. And then uh, ProQR is doing phase two, three in um, their OSH2A, exon 13 um, um, uh, mutation. And um, ProQR uh, works with, um, with RNA um, antisense oligonucleotide. And so it's an intravitreal injection. And um, we have to see what happens with, with that. Um, it modulates splicing. So essentially you eliminate exon 13 from, um, you know, from the mRNA and you make a shorter but functional protein instead of having uh, um, you know, the protein be completely dysfunctional. So that's, that's, uh, that's going on. Um, X-linked retinitis pigmentosa, two companies, uh, Mayra GTX um, has a phase three clinical trial and AGTC has phase two, three. Both work in R with RPGR uh, gene in their viral construct. So those are the phase three. And I know that um, probably tomorrow there will be another one <laughs> that I'm not going to mention today just because their um, companies are moving along and um, uh, you know more and more trials are popping up. But unfortunately, our phase three clinical trial with Biogen uh, called STAR uh, in cordyremia patients, uh, we did a lot of patients um, for that trial at Bascom Palmer and um, that, that trial failed. Um, you know, the primary outcome measure was set up at three lines of improvement and that was just, it didn't happen. And then also the secondary outcomes, uh, microperimetry, um, you know, and others um, did not show um, a significant improvement after therapy. So, um, you know, we learned a lot by doing those patients, but unfortunately we don't have a drug now that's approved for cordyremia, um, you know, because of the failure of that phase three trial. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an exciting field. And I think um, we just have to keep working because eventually we're gonna have more drugs for, for patients that never had any treatment, never had any hope. So that's so, what makes so, me excited, yeah. So what about patients with autosomal recessive retinitis pigmentosa? Any hope for them? Um, so I don't have in, in mind, you know, uh, any, any trial that I could tell you um, although I know that antisense oligonucleotide and um, uh, uh, CRISPR, um, those, are, those are more LCA and they are autosomal recessive RP form, you know, they are. So I know that the, these trials are out there, I, but I don't have any information about them to really tell you because we haven't, I haven't personally worked in it. 
And, um, but I know LCA, um, you know, which is in the spectrum of autosomal recessive uh, RP is definitely being studied. And it's, uh, it's uh, with intravitreal therapy and with subretinol. And I could tell you that unfortunately, I mean, the, the cepafarsin, right, from uh, ProQR that was uh, being studied for um, LCA10, uh, which is CEP290 um, mutation, uh, their phase one, two showed such promising results. And then when they went to phase two, it didn't uh, pan out. So they, um, they didn't show an, a significant improvement in, um, in that trial. It was actually phase two, three that they did. Um, and that was with RNA antisense oligonucleotide for CEP290 LCA10. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens next, but, um, but unfortunately for, at least for ProQR, um, phase two, three trial, it didn't, um, end up showing the same exciting results as phase one, two did. So do you think someday that gene therapy will be a routine part of the ophthalmic armamentarium of therapy? I think so. I think eventually that's what we'll be doing. And I think we'll be learning more and more genes that are responsible for glaucoma and for, uh, you know, for even macular degeneration at some point. Um, you know, the trials that Gyroscope is doing are interesting um, because they are doing genetic testing in these patients. And, um, you know, there's two trials, Explore and um, uh, horizon from uh, uh, gyroscope. And in one of them, they're including patients with low uh, systemic levels of uh, complement factor I, which is, um, it's, it inhibits the um, alternative uh, complement pathway. So, um, and then the other trial re is recruiting patients across the board, 100% of GA patients. So we'll see if indeed um, having you know, th this medication injected in an eye of a patient with low CFI, it would be maybe more efficacious than if your CFI was normal uh, in the blood. So, or in the, in the eye also. So it's interesting. So I think we're gonna discover more mutations. I think genetic testing um, really is important these days so that patients know what mutations they have. And they're not even called mutations anymore. They're called genetic variants, just because we're all different. It's, you know, doesn't sound like, you know, you're a mutant or something, but in any case, um, <laughs> in any case, I think we're going to discover more mutations. And yes, genetic testing is going to be a part of, um, and genetic therapy or gene therapy is going to be a part of uh, ophthalmology. I just don't know in how many years, but probably um, not that far. Well, great! Congratulations on this great program that you've been doing, and we look forward to following up. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on your exciting program.